0: Morning, Matt uh, and viewers. Uh, Bryce Crocker, Chief Executive Officer of Jetwire Global. Nice to be here again. Well, good to see you. Um, it's, when do we see you? back in, back in May? You've
1: been a busy boy. Have been uh, raising money, buying things, um, and well, up to eight hundred million market cap now. So obviously things going the right way. I'd love to know
0: though, to what end? What are you What are you trying to build here, Bryce? I think, I mean, we do see an opportunity in the space. If you look at the caliber of the individuals that. That uh, Peter Johnson and I have been able to convince, uh, as we've been going through since I came into Gevoire four years ago, it's a strong team, uh, and I do think that there's a real opportunity in the public space to create something that's interesting. If you look at the what's happening to lithium stocks, for example, in 2021, obviously it's been quite profound, and certainly this transition, the energy transition, is happening. It's happening quicker than what most people expected. If you look at EV forecasts for 2021 again. We're probably two million up on a four million base versus what we were at the start of the year, and the transition's real. And I think that there's going to be huge opportunities in terms of bottlenecks and variability to take advantage of. And having a vehicle which is publicly listed, uh, strong management, uh, strong board, but also has exposure to those critical materials that do go into that energy transition—that's really what we're about. And we want to play a central role in that. We want to we are not getting bigger to get bigger sake, but certainly we do believe that. Uh, We've got the caliber of team, and I think the recent we've raised over 400 US in the last few months. So clearly, we've got access to capital in a way that many of our peers don't, and we want to be a central player in how this unfolds in the next two to three years. Well, I think the fact you're uh, able to access money is is quite telling.
1: Um, I think you you thought you might be able to from very early on, and you're attracting some seriously good CVs, um, you know, into the company. But again, I want to come back to the questions. Getting access to the market is one thing, but you are in fact you've changed your name. Might be a clue. You're, you're Jevoir Global now. You used to be Jevoir Mining. Is what, what is the what is the thing that you're trying to build here? You've, you've got assets in Finland. You're up in Idaho. You're down in Brazil.
0: Are we, are we trying to do a mini Glencore here? I don't think it, we're looking to build an integrated and it, there's an industrial logic to what we're doing. Uh, so I mean, Jevoir Global, the, the the change was purposeful. Because we don't necessarily consider ourselves a mining company. Sure, we're building a mine in the United States, but if I look at where we're actually taking the group, I consider us a specialty chemicals company in a way, which is producing refined advanced products, which is selling into a high growth sector, uh, i.e., electric vehicles. Uh, Certainly, I think the growth trajectory we're on is different to many in our industry, and I think one of the reasons I alluded to the lithium uh, events of 2021 is there's obviously there's a growth. Potential which is getting priced into those stocks, which isn't currently priced into ours, but we believe it can get priced in once investors realise the importance of those other critical minerals going to lithium-ion batteries for that transition. Okay, but
1: okay, you you want to position yourself as a, uh, a special specialist of a chemicals company. Um, a lot of people want to do that. We've spoken to lithium companies who want to do that. We've spoken to vanadium companies who want to do that because the multiples are better to be a, chem- a chemicals company rather than a miner. How are you going to do that?
0: I think the difference with us is we value that customer interface. So I had, we had our quarter- first quarterly results following the acquisition of Freeport Cobalt a week ago uh, 200 US uh, revenue uh, pro forma year to date. Uh, 25 US in the first month of ownership. Uh, And what's most pleasing is not necessarily the fact that we've got revenue. Like we're not selling an ore, we're not selling a concentrate, we're not selling an intermediate, we're not even selling a refined product. Uh, Many of our peers talk about kind of battery grade sulfate. Sulfate's a crude product. That's the starting point for Cochola, the facility we bought in Europe, that then converts it into genuine high value advanced cobalt materials. And if you look at the spectrum of our customer base, it's a who's who. Of Western industry across the United States, Europe, and Japan. Obviously, that underpins the Mercuria facility to an extent that I'll talk about later in the uh, later in the later in the call. Uh, but we, we really do have a seat at the table and have access to end users and customers and have insights on demand in a way that many of our peers certainly not. I don't. I can't think of any other company that's capped at sub one Aussie billion dollars. That has the breadth of customers uh, and the, the strength of the customer base and the access and the intelligence to really understand what's happening in end markets. Because ideologically, I mean, obviously we've got, a, as I said, Peter and I have been sherry-picking some of the best people we work with, good operators, good project executives, good technical executives. But equally, if you look ideologically, I mean, obviously the trading bent in our, our organisation runs strong, uh, with the high, with people like David Isroff, Greg Young, Wade Yarman, Klaus Wolhoff, et cetera, coming on board. Uh, we do value that customer relationships and we do believe that providing customers a solution, if you look moving forwards in the industry, that's the that's I think that's it's a key, it's a small difference, but it's a key difference. That ability to really value that customer interface. If I'm selling an ore, uh, I'm selling it to a smelter. That's selling it to a refinery. That's selling it to a sulfate manufacturer. That's selling it to a precursor manufacturer. That's selling it to a uh, lithium ion pack assembler. That's selling it to a car manufacturer. Like, I'm so far away from the actual customer, the real customer, that sure you might have exposure to price in a, in a very indirect way, but you don't really have commercial leverage. You don't have it. At, you don't have a seat at the table. And having a seat at the table with customers, that's if. If your uh, audience and presumably the reason that many of them are listening to this is because they do they've done their homework and they believe in the thematic of nickel and cobalt. If you believe in the thematic of nickel and cobalt, you need to get a seat at that end table. you need to move downstream but equally, I think there's a big difference between talking about moving downstream and having the, having the technical capacity and the commercial capacity to actually do it. Well well that's that's the point here. Um,
1: you are buying up, well, you're getting the, the, the financial fac- uh, facilities and cash in place to be able to buy up. So, so what other acquisitions are we likely to see from you to be able to actually genuinely deliver your your ability to have a seat at the table with the end user being the OEMs, not everyone else I think before that?
0: Clearly, we're in 200 US of revenue so far, year to date, pro forma. We've got a seat at the table with customers. The question as we reopen San Miguel Paulista here in Brazil, where I'm currently. Uh, located and as we move forwards in Idaho. The question is how do you build an integrated business that's competitive, that's strong, that can really, uh, that is this different to many of the peers that are just uh, talking about constructing facilities um, that necessarily don't have a competitive advantage? You need an edge. You actually need something that allows us to provide our customers a solution uh, that is different and that's differentiated from, from others. Okay. Um, I guess. I guess what I'd like
1: to understand is there's a lot of chat in the marketplace. You've got newsletter writers, you've got people with with opinions about where cobalt sits in the market and the future of cobalt because Tesla's uh, designing cobalt out of their batteries. It, it, it seems. What are you hearing from the end customer, Ed, which is different from
0: those sorts of headlines that are out there? Well, I think. There's many companies that talk about minimising Cobalt, but those companies are also the major global consumers of Cobalt and their own consumption, despite their change in chemistries, is still increasing almost on a parabolic scale. So that's one observation. I think that certainly what we're seeing, um, current Cobalt market is strong. Metal Bulletin SG standard alloy grade is sitting at about 28.50. The 2022 mating season is underway with customers. Uh, Demand again is strong. So, if you differentiate the market, you have what I call the traditional or the industrial uses that Cobalt's been used for for a long time. And that's really the customer base of, uh, of what was Freeport Cobalt, now Gevoie, Finland. Um, this is pigments, catalysts, um, powders for super et etc. Then you've obviously got batteries, and batteries is the part that's growing at, at a very, very rapid rate. Uh, Low-Cobalt batteries are good for Cobalt, and I'm not just saying that because we happen to be running the, one of the largest Cobalt companies globally. Ultimately, if you look at the if you look at the way that uh, the battery chemistries are evolving, and that if you look at the uh, when we first started selling cobalt into into lithium-ion batteries, the 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 dominant chemistry was uh, NMC one one one. So one part the cathode was one part nickel, one part manganese, one part cobalt. Now, if you do the math, clearly the the world would have been (laughs) the cobalt world would have completely um, there'd be no the EVs would be a fraction today of what they would otherwise be had that substitution not occurred gradually down to um to lower chemistries, whether it was 532, 622, 811, and now even further to, to nine and point five point five, etc. So low low cobalt chemistries are ultimately good for cobalt because sure the number the kg per vehicle is lower, but the number of vehicles increases far disproportionate. So the total dr- draw on cobalt demand is very strong. And if you look I think LFP is a very important chemistry. It's going to have a place, absolutely. and very it's because that LFP is actually critical because without LFP, the cobalt I mean cobalt will end in a train wreck far earlier than it will otherwise. So LFP is important, but if you look across outside of China, with the exception of entry level cars, it's all high nickel. Um, I mean obviously we're working with OEMs across us, across the across Europe. And there's no ambiguity about battery chemistry. Um, It's all high nickel, and obviously with nickel, you need cobalt to stabilize the cathode chemistry. You don't need much cobalt, and the less cobalt, the better. But even, even the NCA chemistry of the company you mentioned earlier, they've got cobalt down to probably two percent, three percent, but it's not zero. Uh, And I guess that's if cobalt was easy to substitute, it would have been substituted. And that's an observation that applies not only for vehicles; it applies in all everybody who uses cobalt, because obviously the supply chain has been. Complicated for a long, long time before the rise of EVs, due to the um, uh, due to the dominance of the DRC and increasingly China on that supply chain. Okay, so it's really hard to get
1: in front of these uh, customers. Okay, these these OEMs. You've come to them with one solution, special specialty chemicals company solution. Given that. It costs time and money to you know uh, capture that relationship. What else can you bolt on to be able to feed into their ecosystem given now that they may trust you a little bit because you delivered on one thing? again coming back to this thing, how do you build this thing out? What are you Special uh, chemicals company uh, two OEMs? Is there more to it? Well, it's not. We're
0: not just about batteries. We're not just about OEMs. We're a specialty chemicals company sourcing a a range of industries of which batteries and and EVs clearly an important part, but it's not the only part. We've got a lot of, as I said, traditional uses, which are also very important uh, industries. If I look, I mean, we're about providing solutions to customers. And so if I look back when I was working alongside Greg Young and others at Glencore, when they walked into a steel mill, they were… The key supplier into that facility, they've supplied ferrochrome, ferronickel, primary nickel, moly, cobalt. Um Kind of the one stop shop, but you can really, when you've got that breadth and when you've got that ability to sit down and assist customers through what we think is going to be a very difficult transition in the next three to five years in terms of sourcing competitively raw materials, I, we see that as a competitive advantage. Um, so, sure, we've got cobalt as the product that we have today, San Miguel Paulista, once it's opened, that will have nickel. Uh, as I said, nickel is obviously an important part of the cathode as well. And, and having an ability to really sit with customers. Uh, and provide integrated solutions across a number of key products into what they're looking for, not only in batteries but also other industries as well. Um, I mean, people people kind of forget, but the stainless market is flying. If you look at the last quarterly results of the European and, the, and U.S. stainless producers, I mean, for those of us that have been in the industry for a long time, just staggering kind of cash flow generation out of the stainless industry. So. The outlook for nickel and cobalt both look very strong and we want to and that's really what we're at, what's underpinning our strategy to get to, to get that balanced exposure to both products
1: okay so um, you mentioned mercuria earlier I mean that's another way into this market you' stopped seeing relationships you've
0: been very clear about that one so what's apart from money what's mercuria bringing to the table I think if you look across mercuria they're one of the world's largest and most successful traders um, they' uh, <coughs> they've been I mean Probably a hundred and well over hundred US billion dollars. I haven't followed their last results, but say one twenty, one thirty. Like so, they're one of the majors. They're up there with uh, certainly with Glencore and Vitol and others. Um, I didn't have a long association with them historically because they were a competitor to Glencore, and we tended to trade. They were trading, I guess, your hydrocarbon-based commodities. So they're big in uh, big in commodities that these days play an important part of the energy mix globally, but. Equally, there's, they're looking at the same energy transition as we are. So um, they're trading uh, fuel, oil, or crude, gas, power, coal, etc. So they've got a strategy in terms of how they're pivoting their portfolio. And I think if I look at what they bring to the table, it's unique uh, because they they have what we don't. Because we we came from, and again, we've obviously got a group that came out of the Glencore structure. And I can tell you, we're not going to be able to replicate that. That that critical mass, uh, which is not, it's not cost effective. Uh, So things like uh, freight logistics, uh, working capital support, finance support, which obviously you saw through the US 75 million facility we announced recently. Uh, risk management, warehousing, those type of uh, services that we look as we're sitting down with customers and and looking to offer a spectrum of 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 uh, of, uh, of, of support to customers with Mercuria at our side, we can bre- that that's just a stronger pitch. We've got the ability to offer solutions now to customers we didn't have before. From Mercury's perspective, I mean, obviously it's a question you direct to them, but I think if you look at the caliber of the individuals, if you like, that have exposure to nickel and cobalt. Uh, that's not something you typically get, and so I think they've got access now to, if you like, a front office commercial team that's got that customer interface doesn't have the doesn't have the the, the organizational back office support that we would have had in our, our prior employer. But that's where a group like Mercuria can set, step in. So the relationship, I mean, I'm I'm really pleased that the initial US seventy five million facility. Uh, Has been uh, has been put in place. Obviously, there's a there's also another 75 US million dollar accordion structure in the event that cobalt continues to rise. Uh, So I think that that's and obviously they invested. They're a seven percent shareholder. They invested significantly in our equity raise. So it's early days, but I'm pleased with how the um, the relationship's progressing.
1: It's interesting actually to me because if if usually when you get a a a Glencore, a Mercuria, the, the list goes on of where they, they bring money into a company, I get a little bit nervous because the company is usually on the back foot. Because your team is ex because of the the kind of CVs that they have in place, do you feel that you've kind of got, you're you're doing this on an equal footing? You wanted them in, and they wanted in
0: for the, all the right reasons. I mean, I think equal footing is. I think we're doing it from a position of eyes wide open. I mean, I've got enormous confidence. I mean, to use Greg Young, for example, I work with Greg Young at Glencore. Um, and so I had a lot of experience trying to manage. I, I, I use Glencore at Extrada to distribute product, 35% shareholder. Uh, equally, we worked in a way that protected the other 65% of shareholders. Um, because, uh, and I think that we're, we're in a situation now where we've got the. Certainly, I've got complete confidence in our commercial team, uh, they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, Equal footing, I think. I think that that's unfair to Mercuria. I mean, <laughs> let's let's be clear about uh, who's who. Uh, Mercuria has 130 US billion dollars of revenue. They're not equivalent to Jevois, but equally, I think that it's if you look across the the groups that we could have partnered with to have this type of structure, to have this type of relationship, Mercuria were really the group where there is a natural fit because we can provide that front office perspective that. Is, is kind of difficult or impossible to hire. You can't go out and just hire some of the individuals that have chosen to come on and work with Jevoire. Uh But equally, we know what we don't have. And so, because we come from that environment, like I can tell you, like what what we had at Glencore and what Greg and the others had was very, there's a reason why they're the world's preeminent metals trader. And Mercuria is certainly one of the world's preeminent energy traders and they want to make that pivot. And to their credit, I mean, very, very. They move quickly. Um, they, they're good to deal with. Sure, they're tough, but so are we. So I think it's a healthy relationship, and I think that we'll do. Uh, I think we can do good things together in the space um, where our interests are aligned, which I think natu- they'll and they'll naturally be more aligned than they would, for example, if we partnered with one of the, one of the other major trading groups, which already has a, a globally significant book in cobalt or nickel. Okay, I think that was my
1: point. Just trying to understand, you're walking in with your eyes open and your contracts team are strong enough to understand what good looks like. That that was really it because usually when you get these big guys coming in, they start to eat away and take chunks out of the company because the management team are on the back foot. They haven't signed contracts which work for them
0: in all circumstances. It's great when it's good. But When it's not, the team were very successful at Glencore. If you look at how we built up the portfolio, whether it was Katango or others, like I mean, the, the structure was essentially uh, to provide support to suppliers and others, and when they stumble, that's when you get the asset. And if you look at their portfolio, a large part of their business has been built up through those sort of security structures. Um, I mean, this is. We're in a position where I think the facility we've got, Cockaloo is very, I mean, we'll come on. If you look at what Jevois Finland is, it's a a pretty unique business where there's not many businesses where you have over 100 US million dollars of kind of working capital, which is liquidatable kind of overnight, if and when we chose. It's um, it's a very different type business model than what you typically find. And that's really underpins the security structure together with the receivables book that uh, that I mentioned uh, earlier.
1: Right. So, so obviously, there's a lot of security in terms of the Mercuria deal. What are the circumstances <clears throat> under which that could be problematic for you? What would what would need to happen for that to fall over?
0: Uh, it's just that if there's an event of default. So, it's secured over the inventory, over the receivables. So, event, if there's an event, it's the, the, the size of the facility is dictated by cobalt price. So, there's an eighty percent loan-to-value ratio, which is kind of repriced, so we can't draw down more than 80% of the value of the security that we have at any one point in time. Uh, so it's actually, I mean, there's a reason why it's priced. Well, it's it's priced competitively for the flexibility it provides us, uh, 5% margin. Uh, and it's, uh, <coughs> it's for, for what we're looking to do now, it, it, it provides a system and it's, it's a unique facility that is really asset-backed. So it's not... It's not, um, it's quite different. It, it dovetails well with the, with the bond that we did in Idaho, because I guess since we did talk to you in May, there were really three key financings we did as an organization. We did 235 US of equity to, write, to buy the business. We did 100 US bond, uh, senior secured bond for Idaho, and now the Mercuria facility. So the Idaho, faci- Idaho bonds secured over the Idaho assets and uh, ring fence there, and uh, the, the Mercuria facility is secured over the inventory. So if you go there, I mean, we obviously don't show people through the warehouse, but there's we've got the the the, the cobalt inventory uh, that relates to the facility is secured uh, in, a, in, the, in a warehouse in Japan and Finland, etc. Right. This is what I'm getting to. When I was asking about you've got a team who put contracts together, so
1: you've siloed those individual uh, raisings or the facilities that you've put in place against the specific assets. So if one falls over, it's not going to affect the other. What happens if 2017 happens again? Cobalt price fall
0: off falls off the cliff. We uh, pay draw. We pay back the facility. I mean, obviously, it's drawn down as cobalt decreases. Then it's essentially the facility reduces. We 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 pay back the facility as we go through. Similarly, the, if cobalt increases, there's an accordion structure. It's not committed because we didn't want to pay fees on that. But there's an additional 75 US million dollars available to take the facility up to 150 US. If cobalt continues to rise and rises to a point where we where the inventory is of a value that we we want to continue to finance that, or we can sell down the inventory. Obviously, and this is the unique aspect of the business. At anyway, at any one point in time, there's read <laughs> the inventory is readily sellable. It's a product that we just you, you move, you pay back the facility. So it's quite different to a typical finance structure. Uh, for example, at Idaho, Idaho has a traditional finance structure. There's a reason we're paying a double-digit uh, IRR on that facility because it's five-year bond, bullet, no amortization. We specifically wanted the flexibility. So, uh, and Idaho doesn't have finished goods. It's not a. It's a development mine. Doesn't have. It's quite different from an operating asset such as Jevois Finland, uh, where you're really drawing something down on secured finished goods, which are sitting in a warehouse. So. What, what- Okay. Again, when companies have come on here and they say,
1: "Oh, we're not a mining company; <laughs> we're moving down this value chain, or we're moving up the value chain," in which, way you're looking at it, it's moving downstream for sure. There's, there's still essentially a core mining component to this. Are you ever going to get away from that? I think
0: it's. We believe in vertical integration, so we've got. If you look at what we're doing at San Miguel, for example, certainly the the cobalt supply into San Miguel is coming from Idaho. Uh, So that provides a degree of protection. Uh, It enhances the strength of the business. Uh, The nickel supply, we're looking at alternatives there and obviously talking to a number of suppliers contractually. Uh, So mining will be a component of the business because mining, but equally, if you look at the lithium uh, producers, I mean, all the lithium stocks also mine their own product, by and large, uh, but that doesn't prevent them from being valued on a basis in terms of the actual product that they're selling. So I think it's really around the product, uh, the product that you're moving into and how you're positioning yourself with your end customers. And also, it's also around the, the strength of that. <clears throat> I think cash flows are ultimately going to be valued on how robust they are. So if you can enhance the robustness of those cash flows through vertical integration like we've done with Idaho, then ultimately that's going to be beneficial and be valued appropriately by by investors. Okay, so talk to me. um, Give me
1: an idea of timelines at Idaho and also down in Brazil, please. So,
0: Idaho's, uh, we just opened the East Portal uh, a few days ago. The West Portal's about 100 feet in, 110 feet in. So, we're underground, uh, construction's going apace. So, we've spent probably 130 US million dollars so far. uh, Both ourselves and prior owners uh, got uh, well under 100 US now to go. Uh, and cons- that will be commissioning in, in 2022, uh, which is obviously pretty exciting, ha- having the only Cobalt mine within the United States. Uh, we're installing the pump-back systems right now uh, with regard to water treatment, putting up the erection and the steel structures to, to house the, the mill and, and the concentrator, uh, so work will continue there over the winter period uh, indoors. Uh, we're putting in a construction uh, an accommodation camp which will be going in over the course of the winter. And so Idaho is exciting. we obviously it's small operation in terms of construction. we've got i mean i we've probably only got a hundred people up there now that'll increase in coming months, but certainly it's quite different to a to a to a mining project that many of us have been associated with historically, which has thousands of people, et cetera. but that also means that the risk is associated with the construction is different to. Uh, to what you'd find on a on a larger scale project, which which we like, uh, San Miguel. As I said, I'm here in Brazil. We're moving forwards with the Senco and the bankable feasibility study uh, that will be coming out at the end of the first quarter, 2022. Uh, and San Miguel is exciting as well because this is the type of asset I think that can demonstrate to investors why they want to back Jevois, why they want to back our management team, because uh, obviously we're we're picking it up for what we perceive to be a, a competitive price. Uh, for the actual calibre of the asset and the longevity of the asset. It's been operating here in Sao Paulo for 35 years. Uh, we're working through with Asenko uh, just determining the optimum restart uh, mix, if you like, in terms of products. So uh, we're switching to a nickel sulfate uh, for the, some of the reasons that uh, that we outlined or that you've outlined in terms of going downstream. That's certainly the product that the OEMs want. Uh, the, there's... <clears throat> and. The ability to produce a, a spectrum of products we think is going to be beneficial. Um, so, the product that the facility used to produce is a metal electro- electrolytic nec- nickel called um, tokan Tins. It's, it's a high purity nickel, 99.9% above LME grade. Uh, the nickel, nickel market's flying right now. Bricks in China are probably 400 US in Shanghai, and in the US, they're approaching $1,000 a ton. So, very, very strong because of the stainlesser market that I mentioned earlier very strong uh, nickel brick market for dissolution into chemical uses. And so we're working with Asenko and I'm here this week with the team just assessing what's the right mix, but we are looking to restart the refinery essentially at a 20,000, 25,000 ton capacity on the nickel side. It's no longer a stage start. We're a larger company now. We can, we can afford just to, get, just to essentially turn it on. Uh, and we're putting in a larger POX pressure oxidative leach So on the front end, we're introducing more flexibility to take concentrates, sulphide-based concentrates, not only mixed hydroxide products and other uh, refinery-type, traditional refinery-type feeds, but also concentrates, which typically would be sent to a smelter. Uh, So we're introducing much more flexibility on the front end, much more flexibility on the back end to produce potentially, still produce some of that Tocantins metal that I referred to, whilst also gaining exposure to the sulphate market. So, uh, San Miguel Paulista is looking interesting. It's um, and Brazil's very competitive, obviously, with the Real where it is closer to six than five. It's the the, the competitiveness of the country, um, particularly on the power generation side, where its hydro hydro hydropower uh, industrial base is very strong. Okay, so you, I'm, j- I'm just trying to get a sense of your balance sheet now because you
1: borrowed a lot of money, you you're producing uh, some cash, you borrowed a lot of cash, and you have got two projects which are Coming online in in the near term. So have you given forward guidance with regards to, um, some of the numbers, some of the dollar numbers that people can expect to see in terms of your ability to produce cash, um, efficiently and economically? And what does the, what's the future hold for you? Is it focused on the current projects
0: or will there be M&A? I think if you look at, we actually haven't borrowed cash. We've set up the facilities to borrow. So we haven't drawn down the bond at all yet in Idaho. Uh, the bond, it's 100 US bond, but it's drawn down in two tranches of $50. we are preparing for that first drawdown associated with an updated cost to complete test that will occur before the end of the year. So that, just to be clear, we've got access to the bond, but we haven't drawn it down. It's the same with the Mercurio facility. I mean, we expect a drawdown. Uh, 32.5 US on the Mercury facility in the coming weeks, but at the moment we we actually have no we, there's no debt that we've drawn. The if you look across the business and the way that we've set ourselves up, I mean we purposely raised a significant amount of equity to purchase Jebois Finland, 235 US. I mean that's uh, we wanted to overcapitalize the balance sheet with equity, and I think that that's the right thing to do. Certainly, it's provided us now the ability and the flexibility to be to put in facilities like the Mercuria facility. Uh, on our own terms, rather than linking it in with an acquisition, where you kind of you're more vulnerable and you're more exposed, just because from a negotiating perspective, because uh, the facility is needed to complete the acquisition. So doing it with equity, I think, was the right decision. In terms of forward-looking guidance, uh, obviously, there's a there's a bankable feasibility study that's published on Idaho. Uh, there's uh which uh, that's based on three dollar copper clearly we're not a, we're not a three dollar copper today we the guidance we've provided on 2021 uh is 20 us million dollars at or above uh, in terms of gevois finland we reconfirmed that guidance recently in our quarterly call uh if for those of your audience that listen into the quarterly call the, i mean the outlook as i said for 2022 i spoke earlier about the contract mating season what we're seeing from customers Cobalt price at 28.50 and seems to be moving north, not south. So I'm confident with 2022. It's looking very strong um, and underpins the basis as to why we purchased Jebois Finland. With regard to San Miguel, we haven't, the the study will be out at the end of the year. So it's premature for me to talk about specific numbers other than uh, we have confidence that there's a business model here that makes sense, particularly given the sunk capital in the facility and the competitiveness of Brazil that I mentioned earlier with the real where it is. Okay, so it's focus on what you've got, is that the answer? I mean, business is quite, if I look at, you, you had an earlier question on m and I mean, clearly if you look at our backgrounds and my background, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say we're not going to do another transaction in the next five years, that would be misguided. Um, but equally, if I look at how do we drive share price outperformance moving forwards, it's really delivery on what we've got and delivery on what we promised and so obviously we raised a significant amount of equity in the raise i think that demonstrating that jevoir finland is a ca- is a business that generates strong cash and that has strong uh, operating capability because it really does transform us and i think articulating that and giving investors confidence that the that the that the underpinnings of the business I mean a strong and expanding i think that's important so certainly the quarterly calls that james may the cfo and i have been handling and will handle, It's I'm, I'm looking forward to those because I think that's important, giving investors confidence that what they invested in is is strong. Um, but then it's also going back, it's it's how I see share price outperformance is really because right now we've got two assets that aren't operating um, and there's risk associated with that. That's, I think, being discounted heavily in our stock right now that is our job to mitigate. So it's bringing on Idaho, transitioning Idaho into operations, and restarting San Miguel because then we've got three cash flow centers. It's part of an integrated business um, uh, that has, as I said, industrial logic. They're not disparate assets that have no relationship to each other. Uh, we're looking at how, how we bring materials from both ISO, Idaho and San Miguel across into Finland and how we can integrate, greater, greater strength in the business and provide more commercial flexibility. Uh, but I guess when I'm asked by investors, I mean, how, what's one of the catalysts? It's really uh, it's really bringing on Idaho, bringing on San Miguel, and I think that's when we we've actually got an operating business of scale and substance in a way that, uh, that that's quite different. Um, Bryce, so
1: just because I think the line's starting to deteriorate at your end somewhat, so let me just ask a couple more questions, if if you don't mind, which is, so you're going to focus on making money, not just turnover, but making money in in the near term what about the future do you it's kind of relates to an earlier question i asked with regards to okay you've got copper you've got nickel but you've also got these these customers what else could you be feeding into them
0: well i think that i mean obviously when we were, during during covid we had a, a a team strategy session this is back in the depths of covid in 2020 where we looked at i mean where do we want to take the company how do we want to structure ourselves where do we, which which kind of areas of the industry do we want to play in and uh, as of now, I mean, we have, we've chosen not to move into Lithium. I think that, and clearly, I mean, it's hard to make a value case for Lithium today, uh, but I think that what we're looking to do is provide an integrated solution to customers. Uh, we're very focused on the cathode materials uh, today and also expanding those traditional uses to, into, into, non, uh, into non-EV and non-battery customers and supporting their ambitions, particularly on the Cobalt side, with the acquisition of Jevua Finland, uh, so an M and A is always on the table because we have to be opportunistic, and there's opp- and clearly there's uh, you have to be able to react to market developments. But certainly, uh, the reason why I'm located outside Australian hours, I'm really focused on spending time both at Jevua Finland, the new operating asset, and uh, getting to know my new Finnish colleagues much better, but also. I'm certainly in Idaho regularly, uh, looking at construction and looking at progress. Uh, and we're also looking at, uh, at spending time, obviously, a significant amount of time down here in Brazil as we look to transition to San Miguel Paulista and really move forward as a three pronged approach uh, into a, a building an operating company. Because I think that once we've got the, the, those three pools of cash flow generation from three different regions, then, then I think we're in a much more powerful position. To really participate in the industry consolidation and the shakeout that's likely to come in the next three to five years, that I spoke about during the introduction. Okay, well, to- talking of meeting people, you also spent a bit of um, time at the beginning
1: of the year cozying up to U.S. senators and governors. Was that was there any benefit to that, or should you've been focusing on the business?
0: No, I think there's always. I mean, clearly, we 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 made a decision that we wanted to draw down the bond um, in, in in Idaho. Uh, it's never. I mean, I'm I'm back in the US next week, and I'm again. We'll be seeing seeing senators and uh, the Idaho congressional delegation. Uh, we're building the only cobalt mine in the United States. It's really really important to the country. Uh, we're producing a critical mineral of which they have no other domestic supply, and we're we're an Australian company. And we're pleased to be working alongside the Australian and the US governments. In protecting Western supply chains and moving forwards, what's a really, really important development in the United States that's completely disproportionate to the relatively nominal capital of uh, sub 100 US million dollars that we still have to go. Uh, we're not in the business of, I mean, I think that there's ways that we can work with governments and we're constructively impatient. And so, for your viewers, I mean, simply sit, sitting there and saying, well, we're not going to build Idaho because we want someone else to pay for it, that's a mistake. Uh, We've got access to capital. We can get the money Uh, if government can move quickly and if we can sit down with government and do it on terms that make sense for Gevoya shareholders. Then sure. I mean, we everyone wants to work with government, Um, and uh, if the if the structure and if the timing is right, and never say never. And I'm still spending a lot of time in DC. Uh, I think my commercial team is presenting at a DOE conference. Uh, later this month on battery technology, um, and we're still working closely with the U.S. government. I mean, it's and that's not going to change. Uh, but I do think that moving forwards with Idaho with the bond is the right thing to do. It means that we've got uh, the U.S. has a cobalt mine quickly, and you know what? As soon as we open, we've got the portals open. As I mentioned, uh, we're currently talking to drilling contractors. Uh, we're going to put in a drift, and we're going to put those drills underground and start drilling as hard and as fast as we can. We are excited by the potential of resource expansion, and that's really what's going to pin, underpin a mine expansion as well. And that's where, once we get, uh, once you start talking about potential mine expansions, mine extensions, that's where the U.S. government and potential domestic solutions and on the on the processing side can come back into play.
1: Bryce, uh, great to catch up with you. Thanks for the update. Um, stay in touch and let us know how things are getting on.
0: No problems, Matthew. Good to talk. Thanks again.